Hello, my bubblas. Welcome to The Lee Show. Thank you to our new paid subscribers, including Cynthia Zabel, Alex Burbitt, Jason Gerstein. If you have not yet signed up to be a paid subscriber, go to leebrestler.substack.com or click on the link in the show notes for this podcast. And thank you in advance for signing up and for your support. I ran a marathon this past weekend. It was this virtual marathon because like, I didn't get my act together and get a spot in the real New York City marathon. The first 20 miles went really well, totally according to my plan, very consistent pace. But then at mile 20, my left glute started to hurt a lot. And the last 6.2 miles were just brutal. I mean, I was hobbling like an arthritis person or, or, or something, and it was not pretty. I had a great cheering squad, including loyal supporters of The Lee Show, including Melissa and Stephen Shapiro and their kids uh, and the Burkitts. And um, the Shapiros both jumped in to run with me for a bit, and they made an amazing sign that mentioned The Lee Show. So thank you to them for the support. It meant a lot. I don't really like marathons. I think my favorite distance is a half marathon or like a 10-mile run or something. My cousin Loretta once described the half marathon as a much more civilized distance, and I, I have to agree with her. I think the the full marathon is just like an endurance slog, and that's not my jam at all. Halloween is coming up this week. Talked a little bit about it last week. I was thinking about the first time I tried a Sour Patch Kid, which, by the way, is like for sure the, the superior candy. It's the best candy. I was on a bus on my way to day camp when I was six years old. I'd never even heard of Sour Patch anything. Uh, it, it just it blew my mind. All of it, the watermelons, the belts, the ropes, the, uh, they're all fantastic. I think good saltwater taffy is a close second to Sour Patch anything for me. Uh, even like that junky Laffy Taffy, I'll eat that in a pinch. Uh, though I definitely prefer the good stuff. I used to love Mentos. If you went to grade school with me, you will surely remember how many Mentos I eat. I don't know if that's a product that people still consume, like sugary breath mints just seems like a bad idea. But I would eat three packs a day when I was a kid, which, of course, you know, we wonder why I had behavioral problems and couldn't sit still. I'm not a chocolate person. I don't like the taste of it. I especially dislike dark chocolate. Uh, I think it's gross. I I really hate peanut butter. So Reese's is by far my least favorite candy. I know many of you will take issue with that. I don't think I like any nut butters. Like almond butter makes me nauseated. Uh, I like nuts, but as soon as I, I eat nut butters, I feel terrible. When I go to a vegan restaurant, I feel awful. And I'm not sure how it came to be perceived that eating vegan is more healthful. Have you ever noticed that vegans are like, they're all doughy and with the greasy hair and the ruddy complexion, and they're getting most of their calories from carbohydrates. So like, of course they look like that. I, I look, I'm, I'm sure I have listeners that are going to bombard me with, oh, but look at this random fitness person who does so much CrossFit and they're super jacked and they're vegan. So you don't know what you're talking about and shut the fuck up. But like, also you shut the fuck up because like, don't try to convince me of something on the strength of anecdotes. 
That's not persuasive. We don't rely on anecdotes at the Lee Show. We rely on data. And just like, ew, vegan shit is... Um, When I was 11 or 12, like when I was growing up, my grandparents lived close to me. And when I was 11 or 12 years old, uh, I was allowed to walk to their apartment by myself. I was very, very close with my granny. We spent a ton of time together when I was a kid. And she was thin as a rail. She ate nonstop, but she was thin as a rail. Uh, I don't know. It must have been amazing metabolism or something. Uh, She was an immigrant from Germany. She came over with her sisters before the war really got started in the 1930s. And they, uh, they, they escaped Germany to a refugee camp in Holland. And then from there, they went by boat to New York. I've talked about this a little bit before. Um, she didn't know any English, but she learned. And uh, when I was a kid, she, she, I mean, it was, you know, 40 plus years later, but she had ditched her accent almost entirely. And she would call me up on the phone and she'd say, Lee, do you want to come over for Kit Kat? And I would say, yes, yes, sure. Of course, granny, I'll see you soon. And she would just hang up the phone, which I think is a thing that people used to do much more. They didn't say hello and goodbye. They would just talk. I don't know if that was like a a difference in phone etiquette back then. No one does that anymore. I tried to force myself to do it for a week just to see how it went. And I came across as incredibly antisocial and weird, even more antisocial than I already am. So anyways, I I would walk to my grandmother's apartment. It was like a 10 minute walk from where I lived. And by the time I got there, I'd walk in and she'd be sitting on her bed. She, she, her bed was like a sofa bed, which was like pretty weird, but she'd be sitting on her, on her fold out sofa bed. And there'd be a wrapper from one of those king size Kit Kat bars sitting crumbled up on her coffee table and she'd just be sitting there on her sofa bed looking kind of sheepish and guilty. I don't know if people even eat KitKat anymore. Is that like an old people candy? Uh, anyways, it's a, a nice memory I have with my granny as being lured for, for KitKats that didn't really materialize. Uh, I, I used to like eating Twix too. Also strange because I, I dislike chocolate. Those don't taste like chocolate. They're a different thing. It's like the same way that Oreos aren't chocolate. It's a different thing. And my brother and I once spent about 10 days traveling around Eastern Europe by train. And we had, I mean, the smallest budget imaginable. And we ate nothing but Twix bars and paprika flavored Pringles for like 10 days. And so the the taste of those foods still has this Proustian memory for me, right? That's like my Madeleine. Last week, when we were talking about can- uh, 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 Halloween candy, I talked about the poisoned candy corns that people were worried about. There were these other Halloween panics too. There was this whole thing about apples with razor blades in them, which how the fuck do you even get a razor blade into an apple without it being totally apparent and the apple leaking and rotting? Did Did this actually happen to anyone? Because it feels to me like it's the kind of myth that was planted by the sugar lobby so that they could convince parents, like, don't let your children eat fresh produce. Make sure they eat packaged candy. Because I, I don't know. And it, it, the whole concept, it sort of fits with this, like, we can't eat apples because we don't know what's in apples. Is like, 
you know, who knows if there's razor blades, that's like the same mindset as like, oh, well, I can't take the vaccine. I don't know what's in it. I mean, all right, but you don't really know what's in anything. What about that other Halloween myth that there would be these gang initiations and that someone being initiated into a gang would drive around without their headlights on, on Halloween night. And then the first person who would flash their brights at them, they would follow them home and kill them. And I I think this doesn't hold water. I would, again, guess that this is a thing that never happened. But I remember hearing about that a lot. Like that was a real thing that could happen to people. Scott Alexander had a recent piece in ACX about climate change that I think is very interesting and it's worth discussing. He starts by referencing a recent poll that found that 39% of young people feel uncertain about having kids because they're afraid of climate change. And that's a really sad premise, I think. And look, let me start by saying, I believe climate change is real. I believe it is clearly man-made. I believe that we have resisted fighting it because of an extraordinary amount of lobbying and pressure from the industries that are polluting most, the industries that are vested in seeing us not fight climate change. But what if there is something to the notion that climate change is overrated, that it's overstated? What if climate change is real, but it's also not world-ending bad? Because those who argue that we should not have children because of climate change are arguing that the effects of climate change will be so destructive that it would be irresponsible to bring children into this world. And they argue that having more children produces more carbon and thus accelerates and exacerbates climate change even further. I believe both of these arguments are flawed. I think climate change will be bad, but not world-ending bad. And I think that the solution to climate change is not to stop having children, but rather to have more children. Our solution will come from innovation, not from degrowth. And the way to innovate is to have more and better children who have more education and more creativity. Now, this doesn't mean that climate change is not going to have some bad effects on some people. It'll probably have the most significant effect on subsistence farmers in developing countries. But for us in America, life will continue more or less the way We live it currently. There's going to be a financial cost and an economic cost to fighting climate change. And it's possible that it'll cost some small-ish percentage of GDP, that it will be a headwind to the economy. But I think it will be mostly unnoticeable. In the Substack, I include a graph that shows five different scenarios for climate change, for warming of the earth by the year 2100. And the the base case, the intermediate case, has temperatures rising by about 2.7 degrees Celsius by 2100. That's compared, 2.7 degrees compared to where it was in pre-industrial times. That's not 2.7 from here. 
that scenario assumes that we don't do much to fight carbon emissions and to fight climate change. And considering that we've already had about 1.3 degrees of warming, that means we've had about 50% of what we are going to experience. Now, look, there are more wildfires, there's more hurricanes, there's more droughts. And some of those are probably caused by climate change. Some of it is just bad governance. We see wildfires in California. I did a whole podcast about this. We've seen so many wildfires in California. That's not just because of climate change. It may not even be at all because of climate change. It's because of really horrendous governance and forest management at the state level. We're using land for agriculture in ways that are not sensible. When California insists on using scarce water resources for almond farming, that's not necessarily a climate change issue, but you better believe it's going to exacerbate droughts. I'm going to read a quote from that Scott Alexander piece on the topic. He said, so far, the droughts haven't been bad enough that California stopped golf courses from watering their massive lawns to keep them perfectly green every day. So far, California has continued using 5.3 million acre feet of water per year, more than enough water for every residential building in the state to farm alfalfa. Alfalfa gets used to feed cows. And the beef industry lobby is very powerful. And so far, California has preferred to ask citizens to conserve water rather than make the beef industry stop growing water-hungry alfalfa plants. But if anyone was actually dying of thirst or even having enough trouble getting water that they might be motivated to vote out some politicians over it, the government could redirect the alfalfa water or the golf course water or any of a thousand other things like this, and everyone would have more than enough water. You see this everywhere. Lots of resources are being wasted for stupid political reasons. If the political calculus ever changed, as it will, if these problems ever start inconveniencing privileged first world citizens, then we can stop wasting the resources and use them to address the symptoms of climate change instead. That's a good quote. Now, a couple things. Number one, alfalfa is important as a crop, not just for beef, but because alfalfa helps to get some of the sodium out of the soil. And so it keeps the soil a lot more fertile than it otherwise would be. So maybe there's another reason for growing alfalfa. But in general, there are a lot of things that we could do that we're not doing for political reasons. How many people have died because of climate change? Thousands, tens of thousands? I, I don't know the answer. We've probably spent trillions of dollars fighting climate change so far, but the effect has been pretty negligible for the average American. Nothing's changed for us. The next 79 years until the year 2100, they may be worse than what we have experienced so far in terms of their effect on our lives, but they still won't matter very much. Even if it costs more trillions of dollars, that's survivable for the American economy. Sea levels may rise, but that's okay too. There may be a few locations that suffer. Venice, New Orleans, I don't know, New York City, San Francisco maybe. But for the most part, it won't matter. 
If you believe that Americans should not have children now, then you're making a few assumptions. The first one is that no one should have ever had a child in history. Because considering how bad and difficult life was for all of human history up until now, this is the best time that we have ever lived in as humans. So to say you shouldn't have a child now because the future is going to be bad, I mean, by that logic, you should have never had a child. We have food, we have shelter. Our world is better than it has ever been, and it continues to get better. And the second assumption is a fundamental pessimism about progress, about the direction of progress, about the direction of technology. And to believe that Americans should not have children now means that you do not believe that we will be able to solve the problems caused by climate change. I'm an optimist, so I believe the opposite. I think that COVID-19 was a good case study. We faced a problem and we were able to science our way out of it with a remarkable mRNA vaccine in like two days. That's how long it took Moderna to formulate that vaccine. I would argue that the, the larger problems caused by COVID are societal. They're political, not just biological. We misunderstood and the media and the politicians misrepresented the risks caused by COVID to various population groups. Again, COVID's real. I'm not some denier. COVID is real and it's terrible for old people. It kills lots of old people. But you see it now in the mandates that five-year-olds are going to get a vaccine. I mean, it's crazy. COVID has become a culture war, not just a biological threat that we could have fought off relatively well and quickly. Now, because I'm an optimist, I believe that the solution is not to have fewer children. It's to have more children. I think that the expected value of every child we produce in this country, on average, is positive for the rest of society. That doesn't mean that all children are going to go on to win Nobel Prizes. We will still make lots of idiots. It means that the more children we have, the more likely we are to produce the next Elon Musk, the next Lee Bressler. I take the Matty Iglesias side of the argument from his book, One Billion Americans. Matty is very smart. I don't always agree with him, but he's a very smart guy. I think the, the, the solution is not to stop producing power and electricity and energy. It's to produce so much clean energy that we have a glut of solar and wind and nuclear power, that it becomes a negligible cost of production. Let's think about the math for a second. What is the actual cost in dollars to the climate of having kids? There was a, an article in The Guardian on this topic. It was, it was like a nonsense article in 2017. And it was based on a, a nonsense study from a journal called Environmental Research Letters. And the study argues that every child we have in America is going to add 58.6 tons of incremental carbon emissions per year. But there's a flaw in the methodology here because it doesn't just take the carbon produced by your child. It adds up all the carbon produced by their children, assuming that they have successive generations going on forever that follow in your line. And it adds that all up and it blames it on you. In reality, children living at home with their parents produce about a ton of carbon per year. There's also no allowance for the possibility 
that children in the future will produce much less carbon than children do right now. Adults produce about 15 tons of carbon per year. But that amount is declining at a pretty remarkable rate. Based on the way things have declining, I would guess that when our children come of age, they're going to be producing somewhere around eight tons of carbon a year when they're my age. So the next question is, what does it cost to deal with that carbon? There are machines that will literally suck the carbon out of the atmosphere, and they cost about $1,000 a ton to do it. And there are prototype machines right now that can do it for about $500 a ton. So how much will that cost decline as these efforts scale up? Is it going to be like Moore's Law, where it doubles in productivity and halves in cost every 18 months? Are we going to reach $30 a ton in the next 20 years? Probably. That seems plausible to me. So let's do the math. If you have 18 tons of carbon output during childhood, that's at one ton per year for 18 years, and then you have about 496 tons during adulthood, that's eight tons a year times 62 years of life. That's assuming you live to be 80 years old. So your total lifetime carbon output, roughly 514 tons. So if we say 18 tons at the price right now of about $500 a year, and another 496 tons at an average cost of, say, $30 a year, that's a lifetime cost of $24,000. That's just not that much money. It's not nothing, but it is not catastrophic and world-changing in America. You would have to believe that your child will have a value to the world of less than $24,000 to make it not worth having that child. So I think climate change is real. But I also think it's overrated. And I think when it becomes a real problem, we'll address it as we are starting to do now. Now, that doesn't excuse the deception and the lobbying by the carbon industry over the last, I don't know, 30 years. But it does mean that to some extent, they were right. It also means that you should have kids and not delay that because you're worried about climate change. For many years, there have been these scientific topics that were considered taboo. Like if you talk about this, you just instantly get canceled, right? You can't talk about, you know, the correlation between race and IQ or else you're going to be labeled a, a Nazi or I don't know, something. Although interestingly, I learned recently that the Nazis hated IQ research because they were worried that Jewish people would have higher IQs, which makes sense. We definitely do. And then the Jews would be able to claim that they were superior. Anyways, that's not what I'm here to discuss. Although how fun would it be if we just turn this into a podcast where all I do is like talk about Charles Murray and the bell curve and just do merchandise for the Lee show. Should we do merch that has like a, a graph of race and IQ plotted on, on two axes? That would be fun. Anyways, that's not what I'm here to talk about. It's not what I believe in. So don't start saying that's what I believe in. Uh, but another discredited pseudoscience is phrenology, which is the study of how the shape of your skull indicates your intelligence level and specific personality traits. That's another one the Nazis were big on. They would just like kill people and get their skulls and do all kinds of like, quote, research, which was all garbage, just to prove that Jews have inferior skulls or some sort of nonsense. I mean, it was really... It was really Chazorai. 
when my daughter was born, they started measuring her head cir circumference. That's something that they do for all kids to track their growth. And I made a big deal at the pediatrician's office. And Dr. Popper, if you're listening to this, um, my apologies. But I made a big deal at the pediatrician's office of taking a picture every time they measured. And I told the pediatrician that I'm a big believer in phrenology and that I'm a leading donor to the American Society for Phrenological Research, which is not a real place. But she got really upset. And every appointment, I would track the head size measurements really closely. And I would sort of mutter like, hmm, very interesting. And I mean, the doctor was so angry with me and which she would try to convince me about how this is all discredited and it's not real. And to this day, I think that remains one of my best trolls that I've done. Um, we should do a, a quick follow-up on something we talked about a few weeks ago about service people and bathroom usage. The response on this has been very heated. About half the listeners who responded said they would definitely let the cable guy use the bathroom and that it's just rude to say no. The other half were like adamantly opposed. They would not let him use the bathroom. They would just say something like, it's out of service or, oh, it's clogged and just, you know, sort of mutter something and then, you know, walk away from the, the situation as best they can. I was thinking a fun experiment is the next time I have the cable guy or someone like that at, at my apartment, I'm going to ask him how they deal with this issue, like how frequently this comes up, what percentage of people allow him to use the bathroom, what percentage say no and make up an excuse. Because I think we need more frontline research on this topic. You remember being a kid and then someone would burp, like a kid would burp at the dinner table and then go, well, I heard it's polite to do that in China. And you're like, all right, except we're not in China and who knows if that's even accurate. But maybe we extrapolate that and we start like a rumor that in China it's considered polite to shit in someone else's house and then the the when the cable guy comes and does that we can be like oh no actually he has great manners it's time for a quick word from our sponsor i love podcasts you love podcasts osama bin laden loved podcasts i think he was a big true crime buff and i published the lee show using anchor I think it's a great service. I tested out a number of options. This was clearly the best. They have great sound quality. It's the same company. Anchor is made by the same company that created the weapons that cause Havana syndrome. How cool is that? And it's owned by Spotify as part of their quest to destroy Neil Young. Anchor provides the tools that let you record and edit from your phone, from your computer. I record my audio, I upload it, and distribute it to all the major podcasting platforms. It's very easy. They'll get you on Spotify, they'll get you on Apple Podcasts, all the leading players, and you can make big bucks. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. It seems that they found Brian Laundrie's remains. And I have to say, I'm disappointed. I'm far from convinced, but I am disappointed. Uh, I, I think there's a good probability that he had some retarded cousin that they kept in a cage or like under the porch for all these years. And then 
they like cut off his arm and leg and planted the bones in the forest with Brian's backpack. And they were like, look, here he is. Oh no, he's dead. And meanwhile, Brian definitely called the vacuum guy from Breaking Bad. And he's now like on the, the lost island with Hurley and Sawyer. And they're pushing that stupid button, playing the numbers. Remember that? The 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, 42. Like that, was, that show was a good premise the first season. And then it became Drek very quickly. What are the odds that Brian is on the island right now with Tupac and Ken Lay, and maybe JFK? Is JFK with them? It's really too bad. I was excited for a trial. It really would have been a fantastic spectacle. Like, for sure, he would have hired OJ as his legal advisor. And you know what's amazing is that in the search for Brian, they found the bones of five other missing people in Florida. I don't, maybe Tim Dillon is right. Maybe people only go to national parks to be murdered. What if Brian Laundrie had gone on trial, had been found not guilty, and then killed again? How amazing would that have been? Or what if it turned out that one of the detectives that was investigating this was like some vicious racist against white people and that he planted evidence to frame Brian? How amazing would that have been? Anyways, I uh, I don't know how many people are going to be Brian Laundry and Gabby Petito for Halloween. Is that inappropriate? Is that un- unacceptable to be to to dress up as them for Halloween? What about another relevant one? You could be Colin Powell. I guess not if you have to do blackface. Don't do that. This is by no means a recommendation that you do blackface. But how fun would it be to do Colin Powell for Halloween? And then just like walk around with fake weapons of mass destruction because that was about all he had either. Thank you again for listening. If you are not already a paid subscriber, please become one. It's easy. Just click on the link for listener support in the show notes of the podcast or go to leebrestler.substack.com. I don't care which one you do, but please choose one. Share this with your friends. Remember, you can find me on Substack, on Instagram, on Twitter. I truly appreciate your support, and thank you. I'll be back with more soon.